15 here this morning, Acts chapter 15. Again, visitors, we're so glad you're here. We do hope this is a help and a blessing to you, and we certainly want to invite you back. A lot going on, as you can tell. Matter of fact, we're, we're, you, you can see that Sunday afternoon schedule is so much that's going on. So we're seeking wisdom on cloning, so I can be in two places and three places at the exact same time. We're not. Don't put that, cut that on a feed and put it on YouTube separately or anything like that. We're, we're, we're not. Josiah's been getting creative with his duties in sound, with different images and clips from the preaching, so he might have to get fired. <laughs> Acts chapter 15. Uh, verse number 13, we'll pick it up, and I'll bring us back into context here in the introduction of the message. But let's pick it up in verse 13. <clears throat> and after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the word, excuse me, the words of the prophets. As it is written, after this I will return. And will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Then the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for your, for your word, and I ask your blessing now. Please fill me with your spirit. Control what I say and how I say it, Lord. I need your mercy and your grace and your help. Lord, please help me to feed your people. I pray that this would truly strengthen them and draw us closer to you, that you would do a work. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this morning they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be glorified. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We began chapter 15, actually, a couple of weeks ago that we got into this. And uh, let's, let's refresh the setting since I have not been in here for, for two to three weeks right now. We know that there's a major doctrinal issue that has risen, and it is huge. It deals with salvation. It deals with the question, what must I do to be saved? What is necessary for a person to actually be saved from their sin, to be in a, play, a place before God where they are justified, where heaven is their home, where they're no longer under condemnation, there is no eternal judgment that they're facing, what is necessary to be saved? What had happened here, it was, there was, there was a, a diluting, a changing of the gospel that some have introduced called Judaizers. They were mixing law and grace. Even though it is settled here in chapter 15, this argument rages today. This is, this is the main reason why there's so many different types of denominations. is because of what it comes down to, what is necessary for a man to be saved. Man and all of its world religions, including many of the different denominations, they have always tried to attach something where they can somehow please God. That it can't just be grace alone. People have gotten smarter over the years playing games with semantics with it and trying to add to grace and yet denying it. Saying, well, this is how you access the grace. This is what is needed to do for you to receive grace. They claim, oh, yes, we believe Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but in order to get to that grace, 
here's what you need to do. It's just semantics. It's a mixture of law and grace because the idea of it being all of God, man just can't seem to comprehend. Man throughout all of history has come up with ways to please God or the gods, however they, they uh, accepted some type of deity. Even in New Guinea, that the 12 years I spent there in their history, this is well before I was there, but still in the 20th century, Whenever something terrible or, or, or drastic was happening in the village, maybe a disease sweeping through, killing, flooding taking place. Uh, on the main island, it was common near, near the Sepik and the Fly Rivers that in different villages they would go to the rivers when this was taking place and actually throw their, their babies into the river as a way of an appeasement to whatever God is there. All of the different world religions have developed some type of system where they can somehow do an action to please God. Where somehow they believe that's necessary. There's even sects in Catholicism that, that and I believe this would be of the, there's, there's different orders in sects. I'm trying to remember which one uh, um, has it there. I can't think of their name right now. But they will actually put themselves under suffering, under actual physical torture in order to please God. You can actually purchase these things that go around your thighs and are sharp as razors. So that whenever you're bending over, it actually cuts into your skin. And this is somehow honoring unto God because you're putting yourself in pain. Amazing. Man thinks, I have to do something like this in order to please God. They don't understand grace. Grace, the word means two words, unmerited favor. It is God who has chosen in his sovereignty to show favor unto you. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Genuine Christianity is the opposite of all of this. Your salvation has nothing to do with what you do, but on what Christ did. To quote one, the salvation that is offered in Christianity stands apart from every other system as a pure grace salvation. So this issue comes up in the churches here, especially starting off at the church at Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas have returned from the first missionary journey. They're in Galatia. It was incredible what God did. The miracles were performed. The churches that were started. You know, we went through that at the very first missionary journey, all that was taking place from Antioch of, of, of Pisidia and, and Lystra and Derby and all that God did during this time. They returned back to their sending church, which was the church at Antioch, which was the church that God was primarily using at this time. It was incredible what took place there. We went through all of that. How this church just completely exploded. They they ended up with five men rising to leadership. Their two primary pastors, according to Scripture, that that taught and, and preached there was Paul and Barnabas. So Paul and Barnabas returned from the first missionary journey. Peter is there. At, at the time they returned, Peter's there. He's at the church in Antioch. He's there. Judaizers come down from Jerusalem. They start this teaching of mixing law and grace. They start teaching the converts there in Antioch. They say, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. In order for you to be truly converted, you have to get, uh, convert to Judaism first. They let them know you've got to be circumcised and follow the law. And Paul hears this. He's like, no, no, no. This, and, and it wasn't a small argument, the Bible says. 
He couldn't believe it. And he's furious at Peter because Peter was fellowshipping with the Gentiles till the Judaizers come down. When the Judaizers came from the church at Jerusalem, Peter steps back. So Paul rebukes him right to his face. What are you doing? You can't be doing this. And so the argument of the church in Antioch starts and they decide, we need to take this to the apostles. Let's head to Jerusalem. So they head to Jerusalem, and this is where we picked up a couple of weeks ago. The council meets. They hear that the two sides are, are presenting their viewpoints. Those Judaizers that are saying, no, they have to convert to Judaism. They must be circumcised and follow the law. There's no salvation apart from that. They need Christ, and they need this. Boy, how many groups have some form of that today? Oh, you need the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that's not it. You better get baptized. You better join our church. There's all kinds of things attached to salvation. That's what's happening right here. And so, three men speak. Peter, Paul, and then James. We dealt with what Peter and Paul dealt with already. Peter was the first one to speak, and he needed to be the first one to speak. He's the lead apostle. And you can just imagine the relief of Paul, probably nervous at first when Peter stands up to speak, knowing Peter has to get this right. He has to be clear. He has to be defined. He can't waver on this. And boy, Peter doesn't disappoint. But Peter, remember, you can just see God working on his heart as this was taking place. I have no doubt Peter was under great conviction when Paul rebuked him. He knew Paul is right. And there he is, why this is taking place before he spoke. Nobody's going over. Remember that vision he had? When God was trying to get him to go to Cornelius? The mixture of clean and unclean meats. Remember, he knew what that represented. A new word. What that represented. He knew that in Old Testament teaching, Levitical teaching, that the primary purpose of the separation from clean and unclean meats was to demonstrate a separation principle from Jews from Gentiles. And here's God saying, I'm done with that. Peter's still confused when this vision ends and all of a sudden the men are at the door. And they're telling him, Listen, a, a man is sent for us named Cornelius. He's had this vision, and God told him for us to come here, look for a man named Peter, that he would come and tell us what we need to know. And Peter realizes it. I'm heading to the house of a Gentile to preach the gospel. This is Acts chapter 10. That had yet to take place. Even though Christ had stressed, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But the idea of Gentiles without going through first Judaism was so foreign to them. So Peter goes. Peter gets there. There's Cornelius there with his house. He preaches the gospel. And before really he even gets finished, Cornelius repents and gets saved. And remember, Peter was astonished. He's like, it's true. This is for everyone. Peter's remembering that. He's remembering how excited he was when that man put his faith in Christ. You know what Peter knows? God never said he has to be circumcised first, Peter. 
You have to follow this law and this law and this law and this law, Peter. Never happened. So Peter stands up and he speaks. And he goes to the past, what happened with Cornelius. He tells all that God did. And then he goes on. He just doesn't finish it there. He goes on. He says, listen, he goes, I am telling they were purified. In other words, they were forgiven. That's what took place. They were genuinely converted. I saw the evidence of God's spirit indwelling them right there. What happened with Cornelius? They spoke in tongues, which wasn't a mysterious language. It was not what we see that started taking place in 1902 to the nonsense of today. It was the ability to speak a foreign language without ever learning it. And they spoke that right there before. It was a sign unto the Jews, the Bible said. And Peter was there. When he heard that, he's like, they're converted. It's happened. Peter said they were forgiven. And then Peter gets even stronger. He says the truth is, and we all know it, the law never saved anybody. And And he goes right to it that we are saved by grace. Then Paul speaks. Paul covers the present. He says, here's what God doing. Here's what God is doing right now. And he goes over what happened in Galatia again. The miracles that took place. The conversions that happened. And that's where we come to our text. This is where we come to our text now with what has been taking place. After Paul finishes, there's this silence that hits. The next one who's going to speak is James. He is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Now, the James here, again, let me cover that just for a second. I've mentioned it. The James here, there's four James in the New Testament. We know that. Um, There's the main one, Peter, James, and John. But this is not that James, of course. He's already been executed. That's Acts chapter 12. He's gone. He's dead. There is James the less. And there's a few commentators who say this is James the less. That makes, I'm I'm not being mean, this makes no sense. There's no mention of him. None. The James that is mentioned over, the, 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 uh, the fourth James, let me jump to that, is just one mention. We don't know if he's even saved. It's just connection in relation to our relative. The James, though, that is mentioned over and over and over in the New Testament is James, the half-brother of the Lord. All right? This is the James who is here. The half-brother. This is the same James in John chapter 7 that was denying that Jesus was the Christ. Same one. And yes, he's the child of Mary. Isn't it amazing the doctrines that get created in the perpetual virginity? Look, look over Matthew chapter 1 with me. Look at this. Let me point something out here. Let me just debunk this right now. Look at the last verse of the book, book of Matthew chapter 1. We're, we'll do the last two verses. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did... As the angel of the Lord bidden him and took unto him his wife. All right. Joseph married her. Now get, look at what verse 25 says. And knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And knew her not. That's a euphemism for sexual relations between a husband and a wife. And knew her not till. If you just read the Bible. And stay with the Bible and don't try and twist it to fit some man-made doctrine. You would never come up with the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That verse right there debunks it. This, James we're dealing with, is one of Mary's children. He was 
most likely the closest in age to the Lord Jesus Christ when they grew up. Again, denying him, we see that in John chapter, by John, I know John chapter 7 sounds early, but it's not. That's late in Christ's ministry in John chapter 7. By the time you get to chapter 11, he's already heading into Jerusalem. That's the raising of the dead of Lazarus uh, for the last week of his ministry. But by the time you get to Acts chapter 1, what's fascinating is this. Here's from John 7, chronologically speaking, from John 7 when he denies that Jesus is the Christ, to the time you get to Acts chapter 1, James is now in the church and a member. He's in the upper room. What happened? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us what happened. Guess who Christ went and made an appearance to after his resurrection? His half-brother. He went to James. Could you imagine James when he saw the risen Christ? And it also shows the grace and mercy of the Lord right there. He met the risen Christ. By the way, that's one of the proofs of the resurrection is the fact of James, the half-brother of the Lord. Uh, um, just com- a complete turnaround. We see him again then in Acts chapter 12. He's now in a position of leadership by Acts chapter 12 taking place. That's the chapter that deals with the death of James the Apostle. And Peter being arrested. This is the James that is going to speak right now. So as we see in our text, as well as the epistle of James that we went through, he's the pastor of this church. If you remember, when the Judaizers arrived in Antioch, whose name did they use to justify their teaching? James. They used his name. James needs to speak. <clears throat> Paul finishes, and they're silent. You might think there would have been shouting. They're hearing miracles and conversions, but there's just silence when Paul finishes speaking. Nobody's saying anything. Why? Because the pastor of that church needs to speak. They need to hear from James. I'm going to put this, our text, in three different areas he addresses, and I think it's pretty laid out pretty clearly. I put it as three P's. He will address the proof of the conversion of the Gentiles, their prospect, and the providence. So let's look at this. First off, the proof. I'm going to focus primarily on the second point. The first and third point are going to go very quickly here. But 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14. James begins to speak, and he goes to the proof of the conversion of the Gentiles. He said, and after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles and take out of them a people for his name. He says, listen, let's face it. Just like Peter said, this is actually happening. We see the proof. We hear of the proof. And he knows many of them have been there at the church at Antioch. They know these are converted people. He said there's no denying this. This is taking place. He reminds what Peter said about Cornelius and all that God did, like I just covered, through a vision to get Peter to go there. And how Peter says, listen, he was there. Peter, too, was astonished. But the fact is, he told him, God saved them. There was no circumcision. There was nothing else. Purely by grace, God chose to save He said, there's no denying it. It's what happened. 
And the truth is, he knew not one person there could question what happened with a man like Cornelius. This was all apart from circumcision. This was all apart from law. God never one time directed, as this transition was taking place, that circumcision has to be instituted. Many times, think, think how we could be the same way as the Judaizers. We get a belief in our mind, and we get stubborn. We're going to hold to it, regardless of proof. Regardless of what we're seeing. Do you know how important it is that we maintain a teachable spirit before the Lord? Now he's going to move on. And oh, the wisdom that James uses here is incredible. Really, it's, it's amazing. He moves on. He just, just listen, let's, let's face it. They're getting saved. There's no denying it. Look how God did it with Cornelius. Look what he had to do with Peter to get him there. We cannot deny that God is, in fact, saving Gentiles apart from law. But he reminds them of something. Look at the prospect of the future. Again, Peter dealt with the past. Paul dealt with the present. James goes to the future. Look at verse 15 through 17. He said, And to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Interesting here. Again, the wisdom that James uses here is just impressive. He goes from Peter to the prophet. He goes to the scripture now. He's going to demonstrate how that, listen, what we're seeing take place is in complete accordance with Scripture. But he's going to use much more wisdom than even that. It's, watch what he does. He quotes from Amos chapter 9, 11 through 12. An interesting section to choose. He's going to demonstrate here how all of what they're seeing has always been a part of God's plans, and he needs to remind them of something they have forgotten. And again, by the way, I believe Paul is thrilled. Here's James standing up. He has what he needs. Peter, the lead apostle, has spoken up. And then the pastor of the church where this doctrine was originating is now speaking. And he's saying, no, it's wrong. It's of grace. James uses such wisdom. I think when James stood up, I think the Judaizers thought, this is our last hope. This is our last hope. James needs to back us. James needs to come down and say it. But he doesn't. He goes to the book of Amos. He could have went to multitude of passages, by the way, that are actually pretty clear in the Old Testament on the conversion of the Gentiles. He doesn't go to those. It's interesting. It really is the verse, verses that he chose to go to. There in Amos chapter 9. <clears throat> what James does is he goes to the future. He reminds his Jewish converted brethren of what is coming. He just said, listen, it's true, the Gentiles are being converted, the Gentiles are being saved. And the, 
there was no mention of following the, following the law, being circumcised, becoming a Jew first. But what he reminds them of is the future of the coming kingdom. He informs them how, yes, right now, God is reaching into all the world, gathering people unto themselves. The time of the churches is now. But the day is coming, according to Amos, when the kingdom will be established. The kingdom of David will be restored. He's letting them know, listen, brethren, God isn't finished with Israel. Don't be threatened. The kingdom will be restored. That's not done. It's not over with. God is not finished with Israel. He says, listen, it's true right now. The entire world needs to be, re- needs to be reached. But one day, the temple will be rebuilt. The kingdom will stand. That day is coming. God's not done with us yet. Listen, there's a common set of teachings. It's called covenant theology, replacement theology, that is false. It teaches that all the promises that God gave to Israel changed when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. And those promises that were Israel now belong to the church called replacement or covenant theology. That's false. For instance, if if you were to hold the covenant theology that Israel has been replaced by the church, you would have to remove this section of scriptures right here. Completely remove it. There is no truth in that whatsoever. I know know that, that there's a nut job down in Phoenix now that's an independent fundamental Baptist that is strongly all of a sudden, you know, uh, um, teaching and preaching and covenant theology. The church did not replace Israel. Do you know, by the way, in the name of that doctrine, the atrocities that were accomplished, that is what was used to justify basically forcing conversions. We're the kingdom now. We have the right. No, you're not. The kingdom's still coming. The church is the church, Israel is Israel. God was clear in Scripture. It's not, it's not ambiguous whatsoever. The kingdom will be restored. The throne of David would be forever. That's going to take place. And if God's promises to Israel aren't good, if God can just say, you know what, I know I made those promises, but I'm changing it. I'm going to put somebody else in your place. As if it surprised God. I can't believe they, they have rejected my son. I got news for you. He knew they were going to reject his son. But if God's promises to Israel aren't any good, if that's true, if covenant theology is true, you can trust not one word of this book. Not one word. Because what's to say God doesn't change his mind on any of his promises? You know what? I changed my mind on that. But the fact is, God does keep his word. There is nothing scriptural about replacement or covenant theology. Nothing. There will be a literal kingdom in Jerusalem over this world. And see the wisdom of James here? He has those Judaizers. He's he's their pastor. He loves them. He wants to see them change their mind. He says, brethren, listen, don't deny it. They're being converted. 
That's happening. But don't think God's forgotten us. He's not done with us. The tabernacle's going to be rebuilt. The kingdom will be here. What wisdom. He lets him know. But now is not that time. Now is the time when God is reaching out into all the world, reaching unto Gentiles. And as Gentiles, they can come to the Lord as Gentiles. The truth is, they were also, the Judaizers are missing out on the greatness of the moment they were living in. They're so caught up in themselves, they're missing it. I mean, here is the Creator Almighty reaching out into all the world, and and they're truly getting saved. Conversions are taking place. He is now making one in God, Jew and Gentile, a people unto Himself. That's going to all the world. Incredible. They're missing it. What do we miss from God because we get too caught up in self? You know, at times, you know, you you can miss, you can get so caught up in, the devil can just get your mind on a tangent and running. That even right here in this little church of 200, you forget what God is doing. How God is using a small church in Anchorage, Alaska, and what's taking place. And the different ministries that we have going on. The bus ministry. Reaching out into the community. What's happening with the growth of Christians taking place. The missions program that's going on right now. Every single week, people trying to go out and give the gospel out in a direct way. Amazing percentage are people going out passing out tracts. To the radio ministry. Going on throughout, I don't even know the number of states right now. He reminds him the day is coming. The Messiah still will return. Look at verse 17. He said that the residue of men, this is a tough verse to interpret, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. <clears throat> comes down, the residue, it, there's a separation, as you can see, between Gentile and the residue of men. This residue, what's referring to? When does Israel recognize Christ as Savior? When does that take place? The conclusion of the great tribulation time. Know what's going to be left by that time? A residue. So he's reminding them, listen, the day is going to come when he does return. When that kingdom is established. When that time comes when Christ returns and the judgment of the nations, the judgment of the sheep and goats, and when the kingdom age begins, remember how all that starts. It starts with Only those who are converted, saved, enter in. Jew and Gentile, of who that is at that time, together. Boom, they go in. Over the next thousand years, people are going to be married, having children. Some children will convert, some will not. There's going to be such a large population that will not convert even during the kingdom age. That a rebellion is actually led by Satan one last time at the end of the thousand years. 
And during that time, and this is, I think, part of their hang-up here of the Judaizers would be Zechariah chapter 8. Because it deals with those of Israel bringing Gentiles to Christ. And he's reminding them that's going to be during that time. It's happening right now as well, obviously, with Paul. But I think he's referring more to during the kingdom age when that will happen. With those, those, the children that are born, has they come up? Again, at the conclusion of the Great Tribulation, they will realize Christ is the Messiah. He is showing right now all that is taking place is exactly what the Bible said would happen. By the way, this is amazing. You might want to mark this in your Bible. This is one of the first times in Scripture we have basically delineated for us eschatology in perfect order. You know, there's all kinds of different views of what's going to happen in the future right now. You have your amillennialists, which dominate your Protestant and Catholic. There's no truth in that whatsoever. Again, that's, that's, that's a replacement theology. That's covenant theology. We are the kingdom. Premillennial believes, no, there's a literal kingdom going to take place. Look at this in Scripture right here. See, by the way, I put my pin up. Did you notice that? First Sunday in November, I put my pin up. I'm going to take it out right now at least for a minute, all right? That was a conscious effort on my part. I get points for that, all right? But watch this. So verse 14, you have the time of the churches. God visiting the Gentiles, taking out of them a people for his name. Look at verse 16, how it starts. After this, I will return. Know what ends this time? When Christ returns. Know what happens when Christ returns? It goes right in order. And will build again the tabernacle of David. You have in perfect order what we teach is going to happen right here for the first time in Scripture. The time of the churches, Christ returns, the kingdom is established. That's a pre-millennial position right here in Scripture in Acts chapter 15. Now there's some lessons here for us. You can almost see how devil is playing with their mind and using that to get them to to dilute and to change the very gospel itself. Let me try and just throw some helps out here for us. Listen, don't ever think God is finished with you. Don't. Maybe you're not being used as you thought you would be, just like the Judaizers here, but wait on God. I mean, Joseph could have let his mind go a really bad place when he was sitting in a prison for a crime he didn't commit after his brother sold him as a slave. When he thought, wait, God, but I, I'm going to have to rise to a place of prominence, a place of leadership. But sitting in the prison, that's not how he thought this was going to go. He just had to trust in God, which is exactly what he did. Here's an example of somebody who allowed, when he didn't understand how God was using him, to waver a little bit. That's Abraham. God promised him a child. He's getting older. He thought he'd help God out. Even when you think, well, this is not how I thought it would look. Trust God. Trust Him. He knows what He's doing. He knows what He's doing. Brings us to the last point. Verse number 18. He says this. Here's what James says. Notice, 19 changes. 19, he says, because of what I'm telling you in 13 through 18, I'm passing my judgment. 
Here's what I say we need to do. We'll cover that next week. But verse 18. He said, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He goes to God's providence. He had the proof they're getting saved. He went to the prospect. What's going to take place in the future? God has forgotten us. The kingdom's still going to be established. And now he goes to God's providence in all of this. He says, remember, God's in control. God knows what he's doing. You sit here fretting as if, as if all of a sudden, wait, what, this is, everything we've known in Judaism is now being deconstructed. He's saying, listen, God knows what he's doing. Trust in his sovereignty and his providence. This is all of God. God knows his works. This has been planned since the beginning. None of this is surprising God. He was well aware that the nation of Israel would reject him. That's even in the Old Testament. He reminds him, don't forget you're sitting here right now, and, and, and you're confused, and, and, and you don't get it. Why, why do they not have to do this? And you say, listen, the fact is God is saving them purely by grace. The fact is this is exactly what the Old Testament said. Our time is in. The kingdom will still be established. But this is the time of these churches of God reaching into all the world. And he says, remember, God knows what he's doing. Just because you can't see it, you can't figure it out, trust him. So often when we face trials, we forget God is in control. He knows what he's doing. James is reminding all of them, God knows what he's doing. So don't add to it. Listen, there's nothing happening in your life that God is not aware of. Nothing. At all. Not one thing. There's nothing in your life, not only is it that he's not aware of, there's nothing happened, has happened or will happen in your life that's going to surprise God. Nothing. Do you understand the measure of peace that can give when you begin to grasp the providence of God? I mean, think of all the Christians that went ballistic and lost their minds during COVID. What's happening? Do you know what was great about all that? It didn't surprise God at all. He knew. And the neat thing is, when I got saved, it's kind of neat what happened. He became my father. He loves me just a little bit. I can trust him. I can trust in his providence that he's in control. I can. Even when the world looked like it was going nuts, you know what? God knew it was going to happen. He has me alive for such a time as this. So be it. Trust him. Trust him. There's a measure of peace that comes when you begin to understand God's providence. That's where James is going here with them. He's telling him, listen, remember, God knows what he's doing. Don't try and change God's plan because you don't like it. Trust him. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Wow, we went really late. That clock says one o'clock. <laughs> The issue that is being debated here is law and grace. Now let me cover this right here. Maybe you're a member.